outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Today's episode of Foundations, which is brought to you by First Light, is all about scrapes and how to hunt them correctly. Buck sign, buck sign, buck sign. The questions roll in by the week, and most of them center on scouting and how to use buck sign. The thing is, most of the buck sign I care about comes in the form of rubs and tracks. Scrapes don't really get me going a whole lot, at least until a certain time of year, which is right freaking now. If you want to kill a buck on a scrape, mid-October is your window. As long as you know which scrapes to hunt and when, which is where we are going with this whole episode. I'm guessing that more than a few of the folks listening to this podcast right now are thinking this is a good time to hunt some wood ducks or maybe get in some last nights on the water catching smallmouth before getting really serious about whitetails. Here's the thing, at least from my experience, mid-October is underrated. I'm not going to pretend it's as exciting as the rut because it's not, but it's not a lost cause either and it's an opportunity for public land hunters as well as anyone who shares the woods with other hunters to have a last week or two kind of to themselves before the rut hunting army marches into the hardwoods with their brand new grunt tubes and bottles of dopey ready to post up on every pinch point and funnel in the forest while taking sunrise selfies for Instagram and filming themselves dipping donuts into their coffee for TikTok. If you want to get out before that onslaught, do it. But do it in a way that takes advantage of last week's staging area advice and something else, scrapes. This is purely anecdotal on my part but let me tell you a few things I really believe about hunting scrapes. The first is that when I started bow hunting, I didn't know anything about scrapes other than bucks made them and I wanted to sit over them because I knew bucks made them. I hunted them for years without ever killing a buck on a scrape, let alone seeing one use one or make one. 
At least to a young, mostly clueless Minnesota bow hunter, they were like crop circles. They just showed up in the middle of the night, and that was that. In fact, I don't think I saw a legitimate buck use a scrape until I was probably in my early 20s. Then, it was a scrapper, and it didn't register as anything meaningful at all. It wasn't until I was on the hunt for a monster buck on public land in the Twin Cities in 2011 that I got a real lesson on scrapes. While the really big boy had disappeared on me, his younger sidekick suddenly showed up right where they had been all summer long. It was mid-October, it was hot, it was windy, and really bad weather for white tails. And the timing sucked, if you believe in that sort of thing. I was tucked into an overgrown fence row, mostly just watching, when he popped out of the cattail slough and worked his way down a wood line. That nine-pointer, he didn't make it too far before a smaller eight-pointer stepped out. They squared off, but didn't fight. Instead, they stood 10 yards apart and both made scrapes in the dry, sandy soil. It looked like a hole-digging contest from my vantage point. The bigger buck worked his antlers into an overhanging pine bough, took a leak on his tarsal glands, and then made his way back to the cattails and out of sight. The following day, it got hotter, it got windier, and less likely that anyone else would go in there to hunt. So I grabbed a stand and some sticks, and I hiked in. I set up seven yards from his scrape in the best tree I could find and settled in to sway in the 30-mile-per-hour wind. It wasn't all that much later when a doe came out, which got my attention because I was hunting hungry and I had antlerless tags. I also thought the odds of the nine-pointer returning were very low. As she fed closer, I looked around and saw tines coming out of the cattails, which meant my focus shifted in a hurry. The wind meant that calling was out of the question, so I just had to cross my fingers and hope the buck returned to his scrape. When I lost sight of him, I figured that wasn't going to happen. But it did with 15 minutes of shooting light left. And at the shot, he took off cartoon level fast, and although I didn't see it, ended up dying in the middle of a pond that was deep enough to make me nearly swim to retrieve him. Killing a really good buck in those conditions, on public land, on a scrape, left a mark on me. It changed how I looked at hunting at scrapes, which was further solidified a few weeks later when I arrowed a great 10-pointer as he worked a scrape in Illinois. That buck, traveling after a five-day stretch of rainy, nasty weather that finally blew out, was working a scrape when he was supposed to, in the morning, after the rain, during the rut. Together, the two bucks made me realize that I was looking at scrapes as fool's gold, yet in a span of three weeks, I turned a clunker of a season into one that looked pretty good, all because of scrapes. Since then, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and hunting scrapes, and I really believe this is the time when most whitetail communication happens with them. But not all scrapes are created equal. Just like the field edge rub, a scrape on the edge of the soybean field is probably not your best friend. It was probably made at night, probably gets visited at night, and probably doesn't do you much good as a hunter. Now, if you're in a secluded spot with low hunting pressure, this might be worth setting up over. It could really concentrate any movement you're likely to see during shooting hours, and since you're already hunting over food, you might as well get in a downwind position to shoot the scrape just in case. A scrape in the woods might be a different story. Might. Might be a different story. Especially a good size scrape. Because this often indicates you're in a travel hub. If the scrape has a licking branch, then you're in business. If it doesn't, forget it. It's worthless. If you don't know what a licking branch is, walk up to a scrape. No, hell, just Google it. But when you're out in the woods and you find a scrape, Look at the ground, then look up four, five, six feet in the air, and there will be a branch that was chewed on, and it looks like it's expertly twisted to hang right over the scrape. That's real important. Now, 
a dished out scrape in this scenario is one that is worth thinking about. Usually it'll be in a place where deer end up as they travel through and stage, and it'll be communication central. The licking branch, which is more important than any amount of exposed dirt, provides a spot for all bucks to leave their calling card via the preorbital glands on their forehead. In both in-person observation and after running trail cameras on video mode over scrapes, I've never seen a buck work a scrape that didn't rub his face on the licking branch. It seems to happen every time. Actually pawing out the dirt and peeing down their hocks to carry the scent away from their tarsal glands, that's another story. Sometimes they do this, sometimes they don't. You might ask why, which is a good question, and I don't know the answer. I also don't know why you occasionally see a buck walking through the woods making what looks like random scrapes along the route, you know, every 20, 30 yards. Maybe it's just a natural inclination that allows him to saturate the area with his scent, but it's a different behavior than visiting a community scrape and adding to the matrix of scent deposited there by visiting bucks and does. And that's right. The ladies use scrapes sometimes too, but it seems like they are almost always interested in the licking branch and not the piss-soaked dirt. Whitetails live by their noses, and scrapes sure seem to be a way for them to check in with daily updates, sort of like the deer version of social media, without all the ads or selfies or humble brags or other bullshit. The key takeaway here is that deer do visit scrapes, at night and sometimes in the day, and if you find one that is ripe, you might kill a buck on it. But how do you know? You know by location and through trail cameras. I'll get to location in a second, but let me first dive into monitoring scrapes with trail cameras. It's fascinating. It's also dangerous because this is often a here this week, but gone the next week strategy. If you have a cell camera and they're legal to use, setting one up over a scrape in October will tell you a lot. If you run a traditional camera or three, you can learn a lot from them too, but you'll have to go in to check them, which means more intrusion in the woods, obviously. When I'm in this position, I tend to slip in as if I'm going to hunt. Then I check the camera. And if it shows some daylight visitors, I actually probably will hunt if the setup is right. If not, it's time to slip out and head somewhere else or back off and just observe the area. Now, as far as good scrape locations go, they have to be where the deer want to walk first and foremost. It doesn't matter if you find scrapes where you want to hunt. If it's not where the deer are likely to walk during the daylight hours, what happens there is that they visit at three in the morning and that's totally worthless to you. Scrapes on wooded ridges, deep in the swamps where three fingers of slightly higher ground meet next to the lowlands, or where a hardwood point next down to feed into distant ag fields are all spots where a, a scrape could really round out your hunting plan. Now don't just get excited when you find a car hood sized scrape with a licking branch hanging over it, because it has to be in a great spot and you have to be able to hunt it. This is trickier than it sounds because it's so easy to find a scrape and decide to climb up 10 yards away so that you can arrow any heavy beamed visitors who are surely coming. Because you're hunting in middle to late October, you got to consider the cover. Consider the reason for a buck to be in the area and moving in daylight. Is there security cover around? Are you fairly close to some known or suspected bedding areas? Does he have to put himself in any real danger to get there? like by traveling through openings or simply covering a lot of ground? If he can get up in the late afternoon and work his way to the scrape without getting into trouble, you're on to something. But now you got to think about the wind. This is a big one because you want to be downwind, but so does he. Most bucks I've seen approach a scrape to work it 
and they just come in from downwind. It's just how it happens. This is where a lot of hunters get into trouble because they think they have to be within easy shooting distance of the actual scrape. If you can get that and play some type of terrain feature like a steep drop-off or a lake that simply won't allow a buck to get downwind of you, then by all means, hunt that sucker that way. But if you can't, which is really common in flatter areas, like you'll find in many plain states, or when you're dealing with big woods bucks in a pile of different regions, you might want to back up. This is a hard thing to do. But instead of planning to shoot the scrape, I sometimes set up 40 or 50 yards downwind. This might sound like I know that bucks will always approach from 25 yards downwind, and therefore I've played chess to their checkers. That's not the case. What I'm doing is just playing it safe. And I know that the bucks that visit scrapes are often in a staging mood. They often mill around and are highly callable when they're in a comfortable spot. If a buck walks right into a scrape and doesn't give me a shot, it might be a matter of a couple of soft grunts or bleats to get him into range. Or I might just see something to work with for the following day's hunt. What I don't want to do is blow him out of there by crowding right into the scrape if I can't get away with it. Sometimes this cautious approach absolutely burns me because they do just march right in and work it without thinking too hard about wind direction. That seems to be mostly a young buck move, however, and not as common with older deer. So I just play the odds and you probably should too. You should also pay close attention to the weather when you're building a scrape hunting plan. Now this didn't come from me. It's been in the deer hunting zeitgeist for a long, long time, but it's worth repeating. It seems that bucks are interested in freshening up scrapes after a rain. That Illinois buck I mentioned earlier, he was absolutely on that program when I arrowed him. I've seen other bucks do this as well. And since they live off their noses and olfactory communication is huge in the whitetails world, it just kind of seems to make sense. It might also be BS, but that's okay. Deer move when it rains and they move when fronts blow through. Now, even if they don't think, holy cow, that rainstorm last night probably removed all my sweet glandular calling cards I left for the ladies or the thinly veiled threats of violence for my rivals, they're out there moving around when the rain is falling and after the rain has quit. You should hunt those conditions, whether you're on private land, public land, clued into giant community scrapes, or couldn't reliably tell a scrape from a spot where a fox squirrel dug up a walnut. Now, I have to say this as a disclaimer. Scrapes aren't the answer to all of our deer hunting problems. Even if you time it right, hunt when the conditions are favorable and identify a perfect scrape in the perfect spot. Scrapes are primarily used at night. They're far from sure things when you're stuck hunting between first and last light. They can be the ticket, but more importantly, usually just show you where lots of deer travel throughout the day and night. Now, even if you're in a low-density situation, like on a big woods up north type of hunt, the right scrape can clue you into a spot where deer like to be at some point in the week. This is good news and can allow you to either focus on the spot or use it as a starting point to backtrack from, kind of like when you find a monster buck bed tucked into a small island in the swamp. Clues. They're important. Now, maybe you won't arrow a buck on a community scrape, but given its location, it will give you an idea of direction of travel, and that will lead you to a softer edge deeper in the woods, or a benchy hillside where he sleeps away the midday hours. Or maybe just finding one scrape that checks a bunch of boxes will get you into the woods when the rest of your hunting competition is home watching football and thinking that there is no real reason to hunt when it will be on fire in a couple weeks. That might be the best reason of all to get onto the woods and set up well downwind of a scrape. So go do that. Just kill one before the rut-based hunter parade shows up and changes everything. Or you'll just get clued into the buck concentration, like I said. This is something just worth repeating and always paying attention to whether you hunt private, ground, or public. 
a place with a well-used scrape, like I said, is usually where deer concentrate and where the odds are high that multiple deer will travel through there. Otherwise, what's the point of them trying to communicate with one another? This means that instead of thinking of just sitting over that scrape as a strategy, that that pawed up dirt with a well-used licking branch might just be giving you a peek into deer behavior. In the moment, the bucks that got blown out of the swamp on duck opener, they might relocate to a deep woods basin where they'll establish scrapes right now. Fresh, well-used scrapes indicate you're probably in a good area, but that might require a little fine-tuning. This is why I always bring in the prospect of observation stands. You've heard me preach this over and over again. If you find a scrape that checks all the boxes, but you sit over and it doesn't produce, what does that mean? Or if you find an area where there are several scrapes and a point of woods that leads out eventually to a picked cornfield, what does that mean? It means you know something about deer concentrations right now and likely deer travel routes. That's not nothing, even if it might be disappointing to think that you could just find the right scrape, sit over it, and fill your tag. The whitetail woods are too fickle for that to be a totally consistent season-to-season strategy, especially if you hunt public land. But it can happen. And if it doesn't, you'll probably learn quite a bit about how to use the knowledge of scrapes to keep the hunting fire burning and the action going. That's a sweet consolation prize. Now next week, I'll start to dive into the very first stages of the pre-rut where this scrape strategy might hold out or it might die. It's okay either way because you're going to get a lot more options when it comes to killing a buck simply due to the dates on the old calendar. That's it for this week, my friends. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Tony Peterson, and this has been the Wired to Hunt Foundation's podcast. Please head on over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to check out our weekly how-to videos and take a look at themeateater.com slash wired to browse through our huge selection of deer hunting articles. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.